This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, September 25th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Brian Dixon. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Restoration Road Church, and uh, I oversee our gathering, I oversee our youth ministry, and I also lead um, our worship through music department, and so most weeks I'm singing but this week I get to share from God's Word. So I'm excited about that um, and thankful I get to do that. We are going to be continuing in our, cha- uh, in our series through Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to please open those up to Genesis chapter 25, which is where we'll be this morning. And as you're doing that, um, just a quick note as, we're, as you're going there and as before we read, this chapter, like uh, chapters before, is a significant one in that it is introducing the next main section uh, of Genesis. So for the next 11 chapters, we're going to be hearing about these uh, characters that are introduced, these people that are brought to uh, the forefront of God's promise. So with that, let's read Genesis chapter 25. And uh, just right out of the chute, I'm just going to say, there's a lot of genealogies in here, so, you know, have a little grace for how I totally botched this. No, here we go. Genesis 25, verse 1. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Eshurim, Latushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanok, Abida, and Eldea. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age as an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Leroy Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's sons, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael in order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Misham, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tema, um, Jeter, Naphish, and Kidima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. And by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the years in the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havalah to Shur which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled uh, over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of uh, Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, 
Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, if, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided, and one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. This is God's word. All confusing names and all. So, so as you can see, um, as this chapter begins, um, we see the end of an era. We have Abraham who dies. And God continues his promised blessing through Isaac. Verses 1 through 11 kind of form this final part, this final narrative of Abraham's story, which started back in chapter 11. The genealogy of Ishmael is given in verses 12 through 18 before moving on to Isaac's family to confirm the promise God made back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 20, which I know all of you probably have memorized, right? Or like a plaque on your wall at home. No? Okay, I'll read it. So we'll just go, we'll go there. Genesis 17, 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And now we move on to the new heading, verse 19, which is introduced by the expression, these are the generations of. Now in Genesis, when you come across that, when you read that, the author of Genesis is, is telling you, okay, something new is coming about. I'm either going to be completing something or I'm going to be telling you uh, something new. New characters are coming into play here. Um, something is going to change. And so we have that heading. Uh, these are the generations of. And it introduces the next main section of Genesis, uh, which is uh, Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob. Again, before diving into their story, though, we see Isaac, like his father Abraham, he suffers the same kind of hardships his father faced. That's interesting because the Bible doesn't go into detail, really, of how uh, he handled it like they did with Abraham. 
But nonetheless, in verse 21, we see his wife was barren. So 20 years they waited and waited and waited and waited and waited to have kids. And finally God answered uh, Isaac's prayer for his wife to heal her that she can conceive and have a child. As you look at their whole story in chapter 26 as well, they, they come across a, a famine. Uh, they have tense relationships with Abimelech, just like Abraham before them. But I believe that this chapter, uh, the main focus of it is the twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And so that's where we'll be spending our time this morning. When we look at verse 23, the Lord sets up their story. He sets up their interaction, what it's going to be like and what we can expect from here on out from these brothers. And he says this in verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, conflict between brothers, especially in Genesis, is not new. It's a theme that we see throughout Genesis, and it begins with Cain and Abel. Right away here, though, as we see the birth of Esau and Jacob, so much of their character is, is explained or is seen just in their birth. And so you have Esau, who's born first, who's stronger and hairy. And this guy comes out, and I imagine just like, here I am, Mom, like beard already, just, you know. And, and it goes on to describe him later just as a man's man. He's a hunter. He goes out, and he gets it done. But then we also have Jacob literally riding on the heels or holding on to the heel of his brother as he comes out. Now Jacob, the name Jacob resembles the Hebrew term for heel, and it means to cheat or to deceive. To grasp someone by the heel uh, apparently is a figure of speech within the culture at this time, which was used to infer deception. And Jacob, no doubt, was a deceiver. He was a cheat. Let's look again. Uh, verse 31. As we go through this, verse 31. Look at how he treats his brother for his own selfish gain. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I, uh, I am about to die. Again, being a man's man, it's like, really? You're about to die? Like, I love my, one of my, my dad, like... I'm just going to side, side note real quick. My dad was the best because he'd always be like, dinner time comes around, he's like, I haven't eaten anything all day. I'm going to die. I'm so hungry. You know, it's just that, I'm like, really? Because I remember breakfast. You ate that. And I remember you had lunch. It's like, oh, man. Such a, such a man. Same man thing to say, I'm going to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? I don't need this. I'm hungry. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. We see here Jacob take advantage of his brother. He scams his brother out of his birthright. Now, I want to be clear about the birthright. I want us to be on the same page here. I don't want to just assume everybody gets it or knows what's going on with that, or even the severity of it. Like, what? what? So he gave him his birthright. What's the big deal? 
Here's the thing. As, as the firstborn son, Esau will succeed his father Isaac as head of the family and inherit a double share of the estate. So when he sells his birthright, he forfeits all title to the inheritance and to the spoken blessing that goes with it. See, in the Old Testament, and especially uh, throughout these narratives, we see that words have power. And the Father's spoken blessing conveys material prosperity for his son. Later on, we see in chapter 27, Jacob once again scams his brother out of the spoken blessing. That then sets them on this uh, journey where Esau is so mad and hateful towards his brother that he has made it his mission to find him and kill him. And Jacob spends most of his time running away from his brother. He's fearful of his brother. Now, on the flip side of this, as we look at Esau, we see a man who is indifferent to his firstborn status. He did not grasp the significance of all that God has promised to fulfill through the unique line that was descended through his grandfather, Abraham. And as you read through the Bible, you see like they kind of put these stories in this order, but a lot of it overlaps. And when the boys were born, um, Abraham was still alive. So they knew who their grandfather was, and there's no doubt at some point they heard about the promise God had made to him and for him and through them. So this was not out of ignorance that he did not, okay, uh, I'll just take the birthright, whatever. All Esau wanted to do was to satisfy his appetite. And doesn't that sound familiar? How often I've found myself in a situation where I will take anything but the Lord. I just, just satisfy this appetite I have for whatever it is, fill in the blank. He didn't give much thought to the seriousness of Jacob's deception. Now it's interesting because the Bible in the New Testament talks about this exact story. And the writer of Hebrews mentions this incident, and he does so in a, as in a spiritual example. A spiritual example of despising God's grace. Despising what God has given us freely through Christ. He says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So we have these brothers and already, we're kind of let in to see just, just a little bit of the dysfunction of this family. Which, by the way, spans the next 11 chapters. Spoiler alert. 
We're going to be hearing a lot about these guys and a lot about just the dysfunction that is found within this family in particular. Now, the temptation I have is as I look at this, as I read through this, one of the things that I do is I just immediately will be like, wow, these guys are messed up. Like, what a messed up family. You know, like, I, just, I, I will detach myself from the text and be like, I, would, I wouldn't do that to my brother or my sister. I wouldn't, I wouldn't despise my inheritance or my family. I wouldn't act like that. Maybe you are thinking the same thing. Maybe you thought that as we went through it, or maybe you've thought that before as you've read through the Bible. Just like, I wouldn't do, I mean, like, come on. Like with the disciples, how often I think, like, you're with Jesus. Why are you doing, like, what, what are you doing? Like, he's right there in front of you. Just follow him. Like, oh, I wouldn't do that. But before we go down that road, allow ourselves to detach from the text. I want to challenge us, and I want to do so through this question, um, that we wouldn't detach ourselves, but we would really, as James talks about in James chapter 1, that we would, we would see ourselves within it. The word is like, like a mirror. We come to it, we look at it, and we see ourselves. But the word teaches us how to see ourselves for who we really are. So the question is this. Why is it so hard to find an example of a healthy family in the Bible. You ever thought about that? Like, why, why is it so hard, as you look through Scripture, to be like, oh, there it is. That's the healthy family. There it is. Especially in Genesis. I mean, let's just take, this is, this is all we've gone through so far. Just this, not this, this. Little section here. And so far, we've seen our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobey God and unleash sin into the world. Now, that in and of itself is like, and seen, done. Everything from there has been messed up. But we also see the account, the firstborn son, Cain, kills his brother Abel. Noah, after the flood, gets drunk and shames himself, which creates a mess within his family. Abraham, the grandfather of these guys, Abraham exploits his wife to Pharaoh, has conflict with Abimelech. He also has conflict with his own nephew, Lot, and it gets to the point between them where they have to part ways, like we can't be together anymore. I'm going to take all my stuff and go this way, and you're going to take your stuff and go that way. We can't be together anymore. Sarah frustrated with her inability to have kids, offers her servant Hagar to Abraham, her husband. And when Hagar gets pregnant with the son, Ishmael, Sarah abuses her in jealous rage, and Abraham is passive throughout the abuse. He's passive. Lot, righteous Lot, he refuses to leave a sexually perverse city has to be dragged out, and then weeks later, his daughters seduce him into drunken incest. And now we have, in chapter 25, a family divided. Isaac favoring Esau, Rebekah favoring Jacob, Jacob cheating his brother, and Esau despising his heritage. 
So as we look at our text this morning, it is uh, not surprising to see that uh, Jacob is not morally superior to Esau. Both of them are sinning. And yet, God will choose to bless Jacob rather than Esau. And why is that? Like, why does God do, the, do that? Why does he do things like that? This guy's not deserving of it. This guy is, is a deceiver. Why would you choose him of all people? In Romans chapter 9, again, this is, uh, is brought up again in the New Testament. And Paul reflects on these Genesis accounts, but he does so as an example of God's sovereign grace. His sovereign grace. He does so as an example that God is free from human expectations as to how he will show his compassion. His choosing the younger son rather than the older demonstrates God's sovereign freedom to work far above and beyond the ways humans naturally measure importance and worth. Or in other words, God's love does not seek out those who are worthy of it. In fact, we know because of his word that no one is worthy of it. No one in and of themselves apart from Christ is worthy of the love of God. And that is what makes grace to be grace. And God's grace to be amazing. Romans 11.6 If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. But still, the question remains, like, why is it so hard to find examples of a healthy family in the Bible? Why is that so hard? Well, the first and probably obvious uh, for most of us is sin. Sin has marred all relationships. It has created tension and stress and disunity, disobedience and distance between us and God and each other. That we're not too far off from Esau and Jacob and acting the way they act. We need to see that and to feel that. Because think about it. You put selfish sinners together in a home, sharing possessions in the most intimate moments of life, having different personalities and interests, abilities and opportunities, and you have a recipe for a mess. Unless that mess is there for a purpose. Maybe the reason we see more families that are messy, like Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, and Jacob, is because in the middle of the mess is where we see God's gracious mercy displayed most. Think about what you're going through and what you've been through, the messes you've seen. Where typically have you seen those messes? It's usually within your family. I was talking to somebody earlier, and it's interesting how often we'll, we'll go through our minds and think to ourselves, like, yes, you know, like, I'll totally, like, I'll give grace to somebody. If they come up to me and they're just like, you know what, you're a Christian, you're a loser, blah, and you'd be like, I still love you, woo, Jesus, you know, like, we think like that, but what happens when it's your husband or your wife that says something to offend you? 
What happens if your kids are disobedient? What happens when uh, other family members uh, hurt you? Now, I want to be clear, by no means am I trying to belittle anyone's hurt or heartache. Because pain within, and conflict within family are extremely hard. They're extremely hard. And I think often for us, sometimes, you know, we want to be put together. We want to look like we got it all together, like our family's got it all together. And I think that the reason being for that is not so much that other people, like, we don't want them to know, but more, I don't want to deal with it. It's easier to give the facade that everything's together so I don't have to deal with it. That I can forget about it and let it go. But again, I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle anyone's hurt. What I'm suggesting this morning is maybe God is leading us from messy to mercy through the hardships we face at home. Maybe our messy families is the ideal place for God to display his rich mercies. I mean, think about it. Like, what better place to practice and display gracious, godly love than within our own family, both immediate and our family of families here at church? Is that not what the outside world is looking at when they look at us? Not how do, how do you guys deal with things when things are good? How do you guys deal with things when they aren't? How do you deal with each other when you can't stand each other? How do you do that? How do Christians love each other? Uh, Pastor John Bloom uh, is the co-founder of Desiring God Ministries, which is a ministry that John Piper began. And uh, John Bloom was an associate pastor alongside John Piper. And he has a blog post uh, talking about this topic. And and I thought it was so good. I wanted to share this with you. Um, Just around this. He says, the Bible's main theme is God's gracious plan to redeem needy sinners. Amen. It teaches us that what God wants most for us is that we, number one, become aware of our sinfulness. Number two, our powerlessness to save ourselves as we, number three, believe and love his son and the gospel he preached. And number four, graciously love one another. And it turns out that the family is an ideal place for all these to occur. Sin must be seen and powerlessness must be experienced before we really turn to Jesus and embrace his gospel. And offenses must be committed if gracious love is to be demonstrated. So if we're praying for our family members to experience these things, we should expect trouble. I just love that line. An offense must be committed if gracious love is to be demonstrated. Now for all who have called on the name of the Lord as their Savior, as, as their King, one of the things that we rejoice in is the fact that He takes our mess and He redeems it. Amen? He redeems it. He doesn't just go, okay, you're a new creation and all this stuff is gone. No. You're a new creation. Now I'm going to 
take all this stuff, this mess you've been in, and I'm going to give you a different perspective in it. And I'm going to use it for my glory. I'm going to show you who I am and my character and how good I am through it. I believe that when the gospel is understood, that when we go to God's word, we understand it, we start to apply it, the messes we experience become mercies. Some of you might be thinking, really? You're you're really going to tell me right now that that what I'm experiencing, the pain I'm going through now in my family is really a mercy from God? How can that be? How can that be? Well, it's an honest question. It's a good question. Uh, Somewhere I I, I want to take us this morning is uh, John chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, please open up to John chapter 17. In John 17, we see Jesus praying what would be his final prayer before he's crucified. This is known as the high priestly prayer. And as he prays, he's praying for his disciples specifically. But then, did you know that in the Bible, God prays for you? Do you know that? He he prays for us. And this is what he says. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. They are like, Jesus receives us into his family. The Bible uses the term adopts us in. We've been adopted into his family. And so we go through the struggles we do. We, we experience the things we do. Why? so that we can practice being like Jesus to each other. We can practice what it actually looks like to be godly, and so the world may know and see that Jesus is Lord. Jesus receives us uh, as a love gift from the Father. He treasures us as a bridegroom treasures his bride. Think about it like this. If anyone was to ask, who gives this sinner to this Savior, who do you think says I do? The Father. Our Father in heaven says, I give. I give that sinner 
to this Savior. I do. Because Jesus loves us, he prays for our joy to increase. He prays for our protection in this world. And not that we would be taken out of our struggles, but that we would be able to endure them. That we would have the strength and the knowledge of him to be able to go through the struggle and to remind ourselves and be reminded by his word that we need him. He prays for our protection from the devil who wants to defeat us, who seeks to sabotage our worship and our work in the world. Jesus also prays for our sanctification, that the uh, truth of God's word would go deep into our hearts and into our lives and into our understanding because it's God's word that will always point us to Jesus who is our wisdom from God. The same grace, think about this, the same grace that justifies us is the grace that sanctifies us, which is only found in the union of Christ. For us to be justified, to be made right with God, for us to be sanctified, to be made more like God, we have to be unified with Christ, unified with Him. And by his grace, he takes us in. Because we've been adopted into his family, we have received his mercy. I believe it's that love and mercy that spurs us on, that helps us uh, to study his word, to grow in our knowledge of his truth, so that we are able to give his mercy in ways we've never been able to before. And not only that, we were able to endure hardships within our families, immediate and in our church, in ways we have never been able to before because of his rich mercy with which he has loved us. So as a Christian, this is why we cling to the hope we have in Christ. This is why we rejoice in the sacrifice, salvation, that is only found in a resurrected Savior, Jesus. That is why our families can thrive, because we can be honest in our failures and our sufferings. Again, both in our families immediate, but also as a family of families here at church. Let us not be like Jacob and Esau, despising what God has given us and deceiving one another. Oh, yeah, I'm good. I got it all together. It's cool. Don't worry about it. We're good. We're good. You're good? You're good? I'm good? You're good? We're good. We can't all be good all the time. And we can't all be bad all the time either because God is so gracious. But to be honest about where we're at with the Lord, that we would be able as a family to walk alongside each other, to love each other, to strengthen each other, and to remind each other we need God We need God. So I urge you, church, do not miss out on the opportunity to know God's word, which tells us about our Savior, that we would understand who he is and what he has done, which would lead us to love him and to teach others about him and his ways and bring him glory. Also, having the knowledge of Christ and what he's done for us, 
It helps us as we go back and we read a section of Scripture like we're reading today, which is not a hopeful one. You read through it and you read about these brother who deceives and the other brother who despises. We know about their story as far as how they end up hating one another and, and fearing, Jacob fearing his brother and Esau wanting to kill his brother. So their life, for the most part, is largely confrontational. Esau spends a lot of his life trying to find his brother because he wants to kill him. And Jacob spends a lot of his life running from his brother because he's afraid. But we eventually see how God changes Jacob's heart and makes an anxious deceiver into an honest, God-fearing man. God also replaces the hatred that burned in Esau's heart towards his brother with forgiveness. And after a lifetime of deception, of hatred, of fear towards one another, we see a beautiful reconciliation. And is that not what God does for us and to us? This beautiful reconciliation. Sinners who are far off, not looking for a Savior, and here comes God. But I want to share this with you from Genesis chapter 33. There's a little spoiler alert. We're going to, we're going to go right to, towards the end of this guy's, these, their story and, and view their reconciliation. Now, to, to paint the picture a little bit, we have, they're going to meet, and they know they're going to meet. Now, Jacob, who would usually run, has just had an interaction with God, and God has changed his heart. And so now, instead of running, he's willing to face his brother. And he's willing to do so and provide a peace offering. He has all these servants, and he's like, I'm going to give him all these servants. And, and just the symbolism there as well, like, he stole the birthright. The older will serve the younger. That's not how it's supposed to be. But I will give him these servants. I will, I will, I will give him this gift in hopes that he will receive it and we can be reconciled. And so they meet out, and here comes Esau with a ton of guys, like, okay, I'm, I'm here to kill. Finally, I found him. I'm here to kill. And you have Jacob, who's not afraid anymore, standing in front of all his family and servants, and the servants he's going to give to Esau. And in verse 4, this is what we see in chapter 33. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted his eyes and saw the woman and the children, he said, who are these with you? He has not met his nephews, his nieces. He has not known his family. Who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Notice how he speaks to his older brother. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And in last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, 
to find favor in the sight of you, Esau? No. To find favor in the sight of the Lord. There's the switch. There's the change that God makes within a man's heart, within a woman's heart, that can help them reconcile within their own life and family. This is for the God. I am doing this to serve the Lord. I am doing this because I love God. And guess what God told me as I went to go do this? To love you. To serve you. To bless you. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. I have enough now, brother. Reconciliation, peace that only God can give is worth more than anything you will ever give me. It's worth more than anything I could ever get on my own. This is what I've desired, not that you would be killed, but deep down what I've desired is we could be reconciled. And the only way that could happen was through the grace of God and his mercy. Because of Christ, there is a hope within any and every hopeless situation you might find yourself in, especially within your family. There is a hope we have. God has led us and is leading us even still to this day through his Holy Spirit from messy to mercy. And he did so ultimately through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus our Lord. But he also secured all that we need to be restored to God and to each other. He secured it. That's what makes the resurrection so powerful. Not only did God defeat death, he secured our salvation. And the Holy Spirit is the seal of that. So my hope, as, as, as we've gone through this text this morning, that you have hope. That you have hope in your life with Christ. I hope that you can see yourself in, as a messy sinner who has been redeemed by God's mercy. You might be right in the same place as Jacob and Esau, in the middle of conflict as we find them this morning. But take heart. As Jesus said, I have overcome the world. I have redeemed your mess. I have lavished my mercy on you. I'm with you. So take heart and have hope. Because ultimately, we know, those who are in Christ, that this is just preparation for what we're going to experience forever with him. Amen? All the heartache we go through, to be able to look upon our sufferings as a joyous thing, which is said throughout Scripture in the New Testament. How can one do that? Because it is preparing my heart for what I know is to come, which is eternity with him, where God takes away the tears, he takes away the pain, he takes away the family conflict, and he brings perfect unity, joy, and interactions that we were meant to have that are fully 
cloaked in God's grace and his presence and his mercy. God has moved us from messy to mercy, and he is calling us to live like that is true. So I pray as a church that would be real for us. We would live as if this is a reality because it is. And thank God he has done that for us. And he chooses to bring us along and do that through us, even still, with our family. This morning as we come and we take communion, uh, this is a meal for the family. This is a meal reminding us of, of many things. First and foremost, that Christ died on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And so we reflect on that, but we also remind it as we take it together that God died not just for me, but for my brother and sister sitting next to me. That I would have unity with them so that more people would know about that unity and come into the family. This meal is for the believer. It's for the family of God. So if you are not a believer, this is not for you. But with that said, please, I plead with you. Believe in Christ as your Savior. Confess that he is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says that you will be saved. And not only that, you will be part of the family. And you can partake in this meal. And to the believer, brothers, sisters in Christ, I pray before you take this morning, you really reflect on the mercies of God in your life. How God has worked in messy situations. And as you think on those things, rejoice in him. Rejoice in him. If you're going through something hard right now, I pray that you would be able to see and know that God loves you, God is with you, he has not abandoned you, and that he's working things out for your good according to his purposes. So you have hope. This is God's word for us this morning in Jesus' name. Let's pray.